Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we are continuing on through Matthew's gospel this morning. <clears throat> and the passage we're in this morning really is a two-part passage. We'll be looking at the first few verses this morning and the next few verses next Sunday. Uh, there's definitely a lot there to unpack, so we want to be able to give uh, enough time to really work through verses 17 through 20. Well, when I was six years old, I was in kindergarten, uh, school was over for the day, and I ran through the playground. I went out through the gate to where the parents were waiting in the pickup area, and I, I went to my mom and I gave her a hug. Except it wasn't actually my mom, it was somebody who looked like my mom. I had mistakenly identified this woman as my mom. They had a similar hairstyle, they looked uh, similar enough from the back to confuse me, a six-year-old. Um, and I learned in that moment that how we identify people matters. How we identify people matters. Right? It matters in a police lineup. If you identify the wrong person, uh, an innocent, innocent man or woman might go to jail. It matters if you identify the wrong car in a parking lot as yours. And somebody thinks that you're messing with their car. And it matters if you're a child leaving kindergarten for the day. While these uh, you know, regular areas of identification matter, there really is no greater question of identity than how we identify Jesus Christ. There's no greater question than who we understand Jesus to be. How we identify Jesus has an impact on our eternal destiny and our present reality. And this morning we'll see the disciples confronted with the question of Jesus' identity, a question that God's Word confronts us with today too. Who do you say Jesus is. We'll read our text, verses 13 to 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. This is the word of God for us today. There's two points that we see in our text this morning. First, we see the opinion of the crowds in verses 13 and 14. The opinion of the crowds. And then next, in verses uh, 15 through 16, uh, we see Peter's confession. Peter's confession. Now last week, we saw Jesus passing through Jewish Galilee, dealing with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, but Jesus is continuing to be on the move. And as we come to verse 13, we find that Jesus and his disciples have traveled north, about 25 to 30 miles, to an area called Caesarea Philippi. Um, now, Caesarea Philippi is only mentioned once here and once in Mark in, in regards to the same event. And this is the only time we see in Scripture that Jesus and his disciples go to this area. Now, Caesarea Philippi was at the base of Mount Hermon. Um, and this is also the location of one of the largest springs of water that fled, uh, fed the Jordan River. And there were some Jews who lived there, but it was primarily a pagan area. Greeks and Canaanites had set up various temples to worship their, their idols. Uh, there was a lot of fertility rituals going on here. At the time that Jesus and his disciples go to Caesarea Philippi, the main deity of Caesarea Philippi was Pan, the Greek god Pan, that little, little half-goat, half-man guy, right, who plays a little pan pipe. He's very mischievous. And the people would go to a cave and they would worship Pan. And this is where Jesus goes with his disciples. 
We don't see him interacting with any of the people there, but he goes there with his disciples. And it's against this thoroughly pagan and idolatrous backdrop that this interaction about Jesus' identity occurs. Once they reach Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks his disciples a question. Verse 13, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Jesus seems to be asking something of an abstract question here. Right? The Son of Man is a title we've seen several times in Matthew's Gospel. This isn't new to us. Uh, throughout all four Gospels, Jesus uses this term over 80 times to describe himself. So it's a very important term, a very important title. And it's, it's theologically loaded. It comes out of Daniel chapter 7. Why don't we turn there together? Daniel chapter 7, verses 7, uh, excuse me, 13 through 14. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Daniel describes uh, a particular figure in these verses. And here's what he sees. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one, that shall not be destroyed. So we see this figure, this one like a son of man, described here, a unique and glorious kingly figure, whose kingdom is unlike any other. It's everlasting. It's universal. And it's about this figure that Jesus inquires. Who do people, who do the crowds, who do the masses, say that the Son of Man is. Now, the implication of this question, of course, which will be explicit in the next verse, is, is who do people say Jesus is? But for now, this question on the surface appears to be a, an abstract theological question. Who do people think the Son of Man is? And even though there was no social media in those days, the disciples seemed to be pretty in touch with popular opinions. And they give Jesus three main ideas that people have about who the Son of Man is. And we see in verse 14, the first is, the Son of Man is John the Baptist. That was an idea that people had. The Son of Man is John the Baptist. And we saw a few weeks ago that Herod was convinced Jesus himself was John the Baptist, returned from the dead. And it appears other people thought John the Baptist was the Son of Man as well. But when John the Baptist was alive, he made very clear he was not anyone special. He says in John 1.20, I am not the Christ. Another opinion the crowds held to was that the Son of Man was Elijah. Now, this was not without some sort of scriptural precedent. Malachi 4 verses 5 through 6 speaks of Elijah coming before the great and awesome day of the Lord. That, that Elijah would come before the Lord came to his people, but... But the Son of Man was not Elijah. Elijah was a forerunner. He was to go before. But the Son of Man is not described in any way as a forerunner. He's, he's the one who's coming. And when we look over just a chapter to Matthew 17, 13, we read that in this, this context about Elijah, the disciples understood that Jesus was speaking to them 
of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is actually the Elijah, figuratively speaking, who was going to come. So the Son of Man is not John the Baptist. It's, it's not Elijah. And the final opinion that the disciples put forward is that the Son of Man was Jeremiah or another prophet, um, specifically an Old Testament prophet risen from the dead. But there was no real basis for this answer either. You wonder where where the crowds came up with this idea. Nowhere in the Old Testament scriptures is it promised that a prophet would be sent back from the dead as the Son of Man. And there's really a fundamental problem with all these answers. Um, these different figures, Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, the prophets, they are merely servants in the house of the king. They're servants in the house of the king. They are subjects in the kingdom of heaven. But the Son of Man is clearly portrayed as king, ruling over all people, all nations, ruling over everything, an everlasting kingdom. These figures, John, Elijah, Jeremiah, they really fall under the reign of the Son of Man. They themselves cannot be the Son of Man. And as we'll see in the next few verses, Jesus is not satisfied with these answers. He does not accept that the Son of Man is Elijah or John the Baptist or Jeremiah for reasons that we'll see in a moment. And he turns now to his disciples in verse 15 and now poses a question directly to them. And this brings us to our second point, the confession of Peter. Jesus turns to them and says, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus gets personal. He contrasts this question with the answer of the crowd. Well, that's what they say, but who do you say that I am? Implying that all of these answers are wrong. The masses do not understand who the Son of Man is. And notice as well that Jesus makes clear he's referring to himself as the Son of Man. Right? He's now changing the question, who do you say I am? Right? He's saying, I'm the Son of Man. Who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And when it comes to his disciples, Jesus is not going to accept an abstract theological answer. He's not going to accept an abstract theological answer. He's interested and emphasizes the importance of a clear, personal answer. He places great weight on the disciples' understanding of who he is. And their answer should be different than the crowd's, shouldn't it? They know Jesus. But if they get this wrong, or if they have an incomplete answer, uh, they're really in no better position than the people, right? <clears throat> and even though Jesus asked his disciples this question 2,000 years ago, this is not an outdated question. It's one that still matters for you and I today. The answer to this question is vital, vitally, vitally important. And it's an indicator of our own relationship to Jesus. Now, if Jesus were to ask you that question, kids, if Jesus were to ask you, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? What might we say? Well, some people today say things like Jesus was just a good teacher. He was just another rabbi, right? Or some people say he was a religious revolutionary. Um, some people say Jesus is just one of many figures that God has sent throughout history to get us back on course. Or some people even say Jesus is just a story, just a myth. 
But these answers sound a lot like the answers that the crowds gave. What they, what they have in common, the answers of the crowds and the answers that modern people put forward today, is that they just reduce Jesus to a mere figure, just a character. But this is incompatible with Jesus' own claim. Does the Son of Man in Daniel 7 appear to be just another person like you and me? Absolutely not. Does Jesus claim to be just another person like you and me? No. Jesus says things that if you and I were to say, we would be locked up in a mental hospital. The answer to this question, whether you're a kid or a grown-up, is a vitally important one. And, and Peter, always so bold, that the spokesperson for the group, he speaks up here. And his answer is remarkably different than that of the crowds, and it's a confession of faith that is echoed down throughout the centuries to us today. So here's Peter's answer. Kids, here's a great answer to the question, who is Jesus? Here's what Peter said. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, and next week when we look at verse 17, Onward, we'll see this is the answer Jesus is looking for. Jesus commends Peter and says, Blessed are you for that answer. This is Peter's good confession. Peter's proclamation of doctrinal conviction. There's kind of two parts to Peter's confession here. First, Peter states that Jesus is the Christ. <coughs> he states Jesus is the Christ. Uh, Jesus does not have the last name of Christ. Christ is a title. Right? That's a title for Jesus. It means anointed one. And throughout the Old Testament, there's numerous figures who are anointed. The high priests were anointed with oil to indicate God's special selection of them. Kings were anointed with oil for the same purpose. Um, interestingly, in Isaiah 45, the Persian king Cyrus is referred to as God's anointed one. So to be anointed in a general sense was to be set apart by God to do a unique work that was historically and redemptively significant. But the Christ, definite article, the Christ, the anointed one, stands alone as the ultimate anointed one. All the other anointed ones point to him. They point to him. And though, though Peter probably didn't understand the full implications of his confession. He means what he says, but he probably doesn't realize all that he's saying right now. We do see in this confession, in, in Jesus' title as the Christ, his three offices, his three roles. Prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the great prophet, the great anointed prophet, the final and authoritative messenger from the Father, sent to give us the words of eternal life and to make God known to us. Jesus is the great anointed priest, anointed to make sacrifice for the sins of God's people and to continue to intercede for you and I today. And Jesus is the great king, rightly anointed and appointed to be the ultimate and final king for God's people, just like God promised to David centuries before. So in this title, Christ, we find sufficient salvation for our sins. We find sufficient revelation to direct us and guide us to faith in Christ. We find sufficient protection for us that we might press on to heaven. 
But Peter goes on, he doesn't just say you're the Christ, he says the son of the living God as well. The son of the living God. This isn't the first time that such a statement's been made about Christ. We, we can look back to Matthew 14. Peter walked on the water and, and they saw Jesus walking on the water and, and the disciples worshipped him in the boat and said, truly you are the son of God. Now I don't think Peter's a full-fledged Trinitarian at this point in the story, but he does clearly realize that Jesus has a unique relationship to God the Father. He does clearly realize that Jesus is different in the way that he relates to God. That's been very evident to the disciples. And when we read Peter's later writings, this is what's so cool, right? We get to see Peter here, and then we get to see Peter in his letters later and see how much God taught Peter. It's really wonderful. We see the full flower of, of this little doctrinal seed here bloom in Peter's letters. Uh, you know, being the Son of God certainly describes a unique relationship, but it also describes deity. And, and Peter himself, decades later in 2 Peter, he, went, he would go on to describe his Lord as our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter certainly did come to realize what he was confessing here in full, right? And maybe he didn't realize it all here, but he certainly realized it Later, this description, Son of the Living God, is nothing less than a description of deity. Of deity. And the phrase living God was used in the Old Testament to contrast the true God of Israel with the dead idols of the pagan peoples. Those, those idols who couldn't hear or speak or see or feel or do anything. What an incredible confession to make in a city where the worship of dead idols is happening left and right. Peter's confession here really is one of worship. And it's one of um, implicit and, and perhaps explicit opposition to the idolatry surrounding them in Caesarea Philippi. Right? Uh, today, our own confession of faith in Jesus Christ. We, we, we said the Apostles' Creed this morning, right? Our confession of faith in Christ as Lord, as Savior, as, as the Christ, the Son of the living God, also stands as a declaration that opposes idolatry, that opposes death's Hold, that opposes sin, that opposes man's attempts to rise up in rebellion against God. We make a, a confession today to the same effect. And when we look past the actual content of Peter's confession, we see that it's remarkable for several other reasons as well. Now first, it reveals that you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know who Jesus is. Kids, you don't have to be a grown-up to know who Jesus is. Now, Peter knew a lot about the Old Testament, but he was no scholar. He's a fisherman. He's a fisherman. He probably doesn't have a formal education. He's not a scribe. He's not a Sadducee. He's not a Pharisee. He was a fisherman. But unlike the scholars of his day who don't get anything about who Jesus is, Peter knows. Peter gets it. Let's just be an encouragement to you, whether you're young or old, whether you're well-educated with doctorate degrees or not, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're a Bible scholar or just an ordinary Christian who likes to read the Bible, you can know who Jesus is. You can know who Jesus is. And better than that, you can know Jesus. You can know Jesus. E education and intelligence are not required. They're not required. Even a child can make the same profession as Peter here. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So first, you don't need to be a Bible scholar to know who Jesus is. 
Second, Peter's confession reveals who Jesus understands himself to be. Again, when we look at verse 17, Jesus says, in effect, yes, Peter, you got it right. You have the right answer. Peter is correct. Jesus does not view himself as Elijah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist. Jesus views himself as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is where many modern answers about Jesus become problematic. Jesus clearly views himself as much more than a good rabbi, a good teacher. What rabbi would claim to be divine or the Messiah or say things like Jesus says? No good rabbi would do that if they are just a rabbi. Jesus clearly views himself as more than a religious revolutionary. He accepts worship from his disciples. If he's just a man trying to turn Israel back to God, he would not receive worship from his own disciples, would he? Uh, Jesus clearly views himself as much more than a mere prophet. Uh, again, he's not a mere servant in the kingdom, but the royal son over the kingdom. He's actually telling people, let me tell you with authority what the law means, how to understand it in a way that nobody else has done. And he clearly views himself as more than a myth, as more than a story, right? Clearly, he's a historical figure, but beyond that, he's the one that history is centered around. And Jesus claims to be no less than the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and Peter acknowledges that in his faithful confession. And third, Peter's confession is, is remarkable because it is far more wonderful than the opinions of the crowds or the answers of modern man. Now think about it, if the Son of Man is Elijah or John the Baptist or Jeremiah, you may have a great man, but you don't have a king. You don't have a savior. If the Son of Man is just Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, you're still waiting for the ultimate fulfillment to come if all you have is the forerunner, right? But to say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is to say that God's ultimate rescuer, that the Savior of the world, has come. That the hope has arrived. And that's a far more wonderful answer than just saying Jesus is another forerunner, isn't it? When it comes to the opinions of modern man, th this is the case as well. John 17, 3, Jesus declares that this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is the result of knowing God and Jesus Christ, of having a personal relationship with Jesus. And here is where the answers of modern man fall short. If Jesus is a mythical figure, he can be no more than a story to you. You can't know him. You can know about him, just like we can know about Superman. But you cannot know him if he is just a myth. You can't have a personal relationship with a story character. Mythical Jesus cannot save you or give eternal life. If Jesus is merely a good teacher, well, we could learn from his teachings maybe, but we cannot know him because he's dead like every other good teacher that ever lived. That's all he is. Good teacher Jesus cannot save you or give you eternal life. If he's a religious revolutionary, well, okay, we can belong to his religion. But again, can you know him? No. Our connection to him is just a superficial one. If Jesus is merely one of many figures that God has sent in history, then we're left with quite a problem because Jesus says a lot of things that contradict other figures sent in history, so to speak. None of these answers work. 
and none of them are wonderful. If Jesus is merely one of these explanations that modern people so often put forth, then probably shouldn't listen to him at all. Now here's what I mean. How can Jesus be merely a good teacher while also claiming to be the Christ, the Son of the living God? What good teacher would do that? If I got up here and I said, hey everybody, I, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of the living God, we'd have some problems, right? I wouldn't be coming back up here again, probably. <laughs> right? How can Jesus be a reformer while claiming to have divine authority? C.S. Lewis um, pretty famously discusses this dilemma in his, his famous book, Mere Christianity. Now, here's what he says. <clears throat> I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. We do not get to have... Jesus' own claims about himself and the ideas of unbelieving man, that he's just a person, just a teacher, just, you don't get both. You don't get both. And when you weigh it out, I think C.S. Lewis is right here. So friends, you too must consider the question. Kids, you must consider the question. Who do you say that Jesus is? is who is Jesus Christ if your answer is a myth a good teacher a revolutionary really anything that is other than the Christ the Son of the Living God then you do not know Jesus Christ and you do not have eternal life now what I'm not trying to to paint a picture of is that you just say those words Jesus is the Christ the Son of the Living God and boom you know you're, you're good obviously faith needs to accompany that right that that has to be a confession made with sincerity with faith. When, when, when we say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, it's a doctrinal statement, but underneath it must be a personal trust in that Christ, the Son of the living God, right? And if you, like Peter, make this same confession with faith and sincerity, then however great or small you may be, however educated or not, old or young, whatever, then you are making the true confession that leads to eternal life. As the Apostle John, who, who witnessed this whole interaction between Peter and Jesus, right? John's standing right there watching this happen, hearing this, this confession. As he would write towards the end of his life in 1 John chapter 4, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Friends, do you confess that Jesus is Christ? 
the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this morning's text. For many people have asked throughout history, who is Jesus Christ? And we thank you, Lord, that we don't need to try to invent an answer. But that in your word, you have given us an answer that is clear as can be. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Lord, I thank you that we get to make that confession alongside Peter. And that by faith, we receive that eternal life too. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hold fast to that confession. Not to waver on it, but that you would continue to strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ. That we would, uh, Lord, keep our grip on that confession firm by your grace. Lord, we give you thanks for our Savior, who is not just a prophet, not just a mere man or a teacher, but who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.